0: Will you pray with me? Loving God, we are grateful for your gift of Scripture. And God, as we open our Bibles and engage with your story, we ask that you would open our ears to what you have for us, God, and I ask that you would use my words, or take my words, and use them for your kingdom and your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you brought along your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, the words will also be up on the screen. Um, King David had just died and his son Solomon secured control over the throne through a series of, uh, of kind of shrewd political moves and, and a couple of, of pretty bloody fights. And he makes a few strategic partnerships that guarantee a certain level of success for himself. And a certain level of success, really, for for Israel. Uh, we're not going to get too deeply into it today, but but some of those partnerships later, they they, they begin to start this pattern that continue uh, continue on much longer than Solomon lives, and it's this pattern where where Israel's kings make alliances with the goal of advancing their own agenda, but at the expense. Of the plan that God had for them, so, so Solomon kind of begins that as he steps into his role at, at king. We, we we we're glossing over today, but we typically gloss over that um, even more significantly. And you can read about those right at the beginning of, of First Kings. But as we pick up First Kings chapter three, verse three, we read this. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. So Gibeon, just to give us some context, Gibeon was a few miles north of of Jerusalem. Historically, it was a place for Canaanite worship, but it was also the final resting place of the tabernacle before the Ark of the Covenant moved into Jerusalem. So it wouldn't have been completely out of the ordinary for Solomon to go there, but, but some would have wondered why he was there Instead of worshiping in the tent that had been set up in Jerusalem before the temple was built. So someone would have said, well, Why is he going to this place instead of worshiping here in Jerusalem? And it's, at there, it's there in Gibeon that the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream, and God says, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child. And do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself nor have asked for the death of your enemies but for discernment in administering justice i will do what you have asked i will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never so there will never have been anyone like you nor will there ever be moreover i will give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honor so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is one of the most popular books in the roadie household currently. So it's it's a wonderful book, and some of you may may know of this book. It starts like this. If you give a moose a muffin, he'll want some jam to go with it. So you'll bring out some of your mother's homemade blackberry jam. When he's finished eating the muffin, he'll want another and another and another. When they're all gone, he'll ask you to make some more. You'll have to go to the store to get some muffin mix. He'll want to go with you. When he opens the door and feels how chilly it is, he'll ask to borrow a sweater. When he puts the sweater on, he'll notice one of the loose buttons. He'll ask for a needle and thread. He'll start sewing. The button will remind him of the puppets his grandmother used to make. So, he'll ask you for some old socks. Are any of you familiar with this book? So this book goes on and on and on and on about the moose asking for something and not making him think about something else. The, the, the author, her name's Laura Numeroff, and she's written a couple books just like it. If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. If You Give a Pig a Pancake. If You Give a Cat a Cupcake. And then there's a tongue-in-cheek one that my wife said that she found. this called If You Give a Man a Cookie each each (laughs) book's oh boy so each book starts with this simple sentence if you give a moose a muffin where one small act of kindness snowballs into another act snowballs into another one and before you know it you're on your way to the store with a moose so all of the books end in the same place that they begin. So you need to be careful when you give a moose a muffin. Over the years, all, all kinds of meetings have been been pulled out or read into Numerov's books. In the mid 80s and early 90s, they were even used in policy debates on the floor of Congress. There are metaphors in these stories that could be applied to just about every area of our lives, including our prayer life. I could have just as easily titled this morning's sermon. If you grant a king a prayer. Except, unlike the main characters in Numeroff's books, when Solomon answers God's question, he's direct. He doesn't dance around or or kind of shy away from what he's experiencing or what he's facing, nor does he, he try to make a deal. He approaches God humbly and honestly and and he's direct. Right to the point, knowing that God already knows the deepest desires of his heart. The lessons that we learn from Solomon's prayer are the same sort of lessons that we find about prayer throughout all of Scripture. In Psalm 37, Solomon's dad writes that when we take delight and commit ourselves to God, he will grant us the desires of our heart. If Solomon's request didn't line up with what God wanted for God's people, it's safe to assume that he would have heard a different response than he did. It's not as though God is, and I think sometimes when we approach God in prayer, we, we, we think of God this way. It's not as though God is, is some sort of, of genie ready to grant whatever we ask. But, but, when our deepest desires line up with God's will for this world, God's will for God's people, God is eager to meet us where we stand. It's why when we lift up the needs of our community, when we, we pray for whatever it is that's going on in our, our world every Sunday during the pastoral prayer or the, the prayers of the people, we conclude with the Lord's prayer. We, we essentially lay it all out. We say, God, here's what's going on in our life our community life together, our lives individually. Here are our needs. Here's what's going on around us. And then we end with, your kingdom come, your will be done. And as we do, we're saying, God, you are sovereign. Do what you're going to do and help us to know what your will is in the midst of everything that we are experiencing. In the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus teaches his disciples that same Lord's Prayer, he tells the story of a persistent friend. Most of us know the story, who shows up on his neighbor's door at midnight, knocking on the door until the neighbor comes in and answers the door. The neighbor asks for bread. It's where we we read a passage about prayer that is so often misrepresented Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and and the door will be opened to you. Sometimes I think we we read that passage and think, okay, so if we ask for X, for Y, or Z, God's definitely going to do it. If I can just be annoying enough, if I can just be annoying enough, then then God will answer. I mean, that's what Jesus said, right? We need to make sure that we we pair Jesus' words there with ask, seek, and knock, with his words that he he says in places like John 15, where he he promises to remain in his followers if they remain in him. The word that we translate here is remain. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you is a powerful word. might be among the most powerful words in in all of John's gospel. It means to abide and carries this connotation of, of building a home of taking up residence in a place. So Jesus makes a home with his disciples through conversation. When his words land on listening ears and are taken seriously. In turn, those who remain or abide in Jesus, those who listen to what Jesus says, are invited into this constant back and forth conversation with Jesus. That's what we What Jesus means when he says, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. That that concept of abiding. Now, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes when I listen to another person, uh, my wife accuses me of this often, and usually rightfully so. Say I'm having a conversation with Haley, with my wife, and I'm not really engaging in what she's saying. Right, right. She's talking to me, but instead of actually listening to her, I'm thinking about what my response or my defense is going to be. Instead of actually paying attention to what she's saying, I start thinking about how I'm going to respond. And when that happens, am I really hearing her? No. No, if you give a man a cookie, right? The sort of conversation Jesus invites his followers to have demands that we actually hear what Jesus says, that we don't spend all of our time thinking about how we're going to respond, that we actually hear what Jesus says. We can't line ourselves up with what God wants for us and what God wants for our world until we really learn how to listen. And when we get to that place, when our will is in line with our creators, we're invited to ask, to seek, and to knock. We're told that Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking in the ways David had instructed him, his dad, in the ways that his dad instructed him. Now, from what we can tell, Solomon is remaining, is abiding in the Lord, constantly listening. And because of that reality, God hears Solomon's prayer. I think it's also important that we see that God asks him to voice the prayer. What what is it that I can do for you? What is it that he voices it out loud, that we, we're able to read it, that he doesn't just, just think this prayer? It answers the question, if we're walking with God, remaining, abiding in Him, and God knows everything about us, why do we need to learn to pray out loud? Why do we ever need to share anything with God out loud? Uh, my kids are six, three, and one. They're all at different stages of development, and sometimes wandering through those different stages of development is quite humorous. Um, But more often than not, my wife Haley and I know when the two younger kids, the one-year-old and the three-year-old, we know what they need, even if they can't express it, right? Even if they can't voice it. If my son is screaming and banging on the fridge, I know that he's hungry. He doesn't need to tell me, I'm hungry, Dad. If my, my one-year-old daughter, my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter is screaming in the middle of the night, I know that she, she needs something. But our hope is that one day, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, our two younger kids will get to the place where our, our six-year-old is, where most of the time she uses words to communicate her needs. Now, it's important for us as, as parents for our kids to develop language skills, But it's also important for them. It's not just important for us. It's also important for them, for them, for my kids. Now, the same is true for us when it comes to developing a a prayer language. It's true that God knows our needs before we ask, but it's also true that we need to learn how to express them. So Solomon starts by approaching God humbly and honestly. He says, It's obvious that you were good to my dad. I mean, the whole reason I'm king is because of my dad. And I'm grateful for that reality, but, but I'm only a child. I'm only a child. Depending on, on who you read, Solomon was between 12 or 14 when, when he becomes king of Israel. But this was about so much more than just his age. Imagine the pressure he felt standing in King David's shadow, his dad's shadow. He had, older, he had older brothers who, who thought that they were the rightful heirs to his dad's throne. And the same people who were threatening his dad when his dad was king were, were still a threat to Israel. Imagine the pressure that he felt. He felt the burden to lead well, but wasn't exactly confident in his ability to do so. And he doesn't hide that reality. I'm, I'm, I'm just a child. I'm just a child. He's direct with God. And he says, give me, your your servant, a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Another way to translate his request is, help me to know the difference between good and evil. Help me to know the difference between good and evil. Where else do we hear that in Scripture? Genesis. It's the exact same phrase that's used in the creation story. Help me to know, help me to know the difference between good and evil. God plants Adam and Eve in the center of Eden, tells them to eat of any tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They're tempted by the serpent, told they won't die if they eat from the tree, but that their eyes would be opened. The Hebrew words used in Genesis and here in 1 Kings are the exact same words. Except there's something different here. In Eden, humankind takes what was God's to give and takes it for themselves. They listen to the serpent. Here, Solomon is direct with his request. He listens to God and is honest with the fact that he needs help hearing God's voice in the first place. He's not asking to discern good from evil for his own agenda He's asking so he'll know how to lead Israel in a way that is pleasing to God. Now, when we talk about wisdom books in the Hebrew Scriptures, we we typically talk about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and and maybe Job. Um, And each of those books, when they talk about wisdom, it's usually referring something along the, the idea of wisdom being reverence for God in the places that we live. So wisdom begins with reverence. Wisdom begins with with reverence. Solomon is honest, he's humble, and direct with his prayer prayer requests. But more than anything, he's reverent. He's reverent. He approaches God in this this place of recognizing who God is. And as a result, God hears his prayer. He's granted wisdom and, and, and much, much more wealth, honor, a long life. Now, I think it's foolish to assume that if we repeat Solomon's prayer just as it is, that we're going to be granted the same sort of the things that, that Solomon was given. And in my mind, the lesson isn't so much for us to pray the exact words that, that Solomon prayed, but it is to approach God with the same posture that Solomon approached God with, with the same sort of reverence for approaching God. Are you humble when you pray? Are you honest with yourself and with your God? If God already knows what you're thinking, are you honest? Are you direct? Solomon's posture is one that's repeated throughout Scripture with those who are in constant conversation with God. It's echoed through the instructions that Jesus teaches about, about prayer to, to his followers. And we see that same sort of posture taken for the people who, who approach Jesus and have their prayers answered. One of my favorite examples of that posture comes from a man named Bartimaeus. Jesus and his disciples are, are walking out of Jericho on their way into Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus calls out. Bartimaeus calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd say, oh, what a nuisance. What a nuisance. Just be quiet. And he calls out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Even though Jesus' followers thought the man was a nuisance, Jesus still says, come to me. Call him. Have him come toward me. So the man, Bartimaeus, he, he throws his things to the side, jumps to his feet, and he approaches Jesus. Jesus asks a question that's very, very similar what God asked Solomon. Very, very similar. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man is direct. He's direct with his request. Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus responds, go, your faith has healed you. His faith compelled him to call out to Jesus in the first place, to be to be honest with his need, and to get up and directly ask Jesus for help. It's the reason that he's heard, it's the reason that he's healed. Now, my my thought when I, I look through Solomon and I think about What we are supposed to take away from this this story, this calling of Solomon, is that we would learn to take the same sort of posture that Bartimaeus took as he approached Jesus, but also the posture of reverence that Solomon takes as he approaches God. May we be that people. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for the example we're given with Solomon's prayer. Grant us the strength to approach you openly, to approach you honestly, and to approach you directly. God, help us to develop a posture of reverence. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.